Generative AI holds huge promise in healthcare. It can aid diagnosis, engage in chats with patients, and reduce the drudgery of medical note-taking and coding. But it's also likely to add to the already steep cost of healthcare data breaches and other cyber attacks. Hi, everyone. I'm David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group and host of the Health Biz Podcast, a weekly show where I interview top healthcare leaders about their lives and careers. Today's guest Jerry Santo Tomas is Chief Information Security Officer, or CISO, of HealthEdge, which helps healthcare payers accelerate digital transformation and use it for strategic advantage. He's passionate about promoting information security to keep the bad guys at bay and help the good guys achieve their objectives. If you enjoyed this episode, please press that like button and subscribe. Jerry, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Yeah, thanks, David, for having me. Yeah, you didn't know what you're getting into, but you're too late now, so... Uh, I want to hear a little bit about your background, your upbringing, any childhood influences in particular that have uh, stuck with you throughout your career. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I was born and raised in the Philippines, um, and I actually moved here in the States uh, back in 1999. So I was born and raised and, and spent my childhood in the Philippines. Um, my influencers, of course, are my parents. Uh, first, my my father, who is a retired or who was a retired Air, Air Force officer, uh, was also into you know this business of poultry. Um, and what he influenced me most is how to be a good leader through empowerment and learning from, from my mistakes. So that's how I uh, probably started my leadership um, you know, skill set by him being my, my uh, influencer. And then on the other side, of course, my, my mother, who is also uh, passionate about the business um, back then, and she influenced me about uh, hard work and the discipline behind it. Uh, so those are the two influencers I, I have. Uh, I spent my education, um, of course, in the Philippines, uh, and I studied at the University of Santo Tomas, uh, majoring in business. Now, Jerry, I knew that you were—I I knew you're a good student. Uh -huh. I was a good student too, but you know, my college didn't name itself after me. Did they name it after you before <laughs> or after you graduated? Actually, one of my professors asked me about that. Do you, do you own our school? I said no. <laughs> <laughs> it just so happened it's you know it's my last name too. But yeah, I studied there for uh, three years, majoring in business. Um, I actually dropped out before my final year to help out in the family business uh, when my father passed away. So okay. um, I've been battle tested in the poultry business back then, learned a lot about, uh, you know, hard work, discipline and uh, business operations overall. Yeah. Now, early on, you started in these uh, CISO roles, and it's not an obvious jump, you know, from what you were doing in terms of your family business or even what you were studying in school. How did you get into that that field, and then how did it relate to it? Seems like then you went uh, back to school once you were out of the out of the Philippines and have degrees from other places that have not yet named themselves after you for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very interesting uh, question that I've, I've received from from many folks, you know, because I started my career in the poultry business. Uh, almost became a vet when I was planning to go back to school uh, back then um, in the uh, early 90s. Uh, but what, what really happened is because of my experience and strong uh, skill set in business operations uh, uh, in the, the family poultry business, uh, my friends from uh, my childhood friends and high school friends 
uh, came up with this idea of, hey, maybe, you know, you should join us. Uh, we're building a computer business back in uh, 1990. And uh, long short of it, uh, you know, they, they pulled me, they recruited me um, to, to be head of the uh, business operations of the computer business, not for my computer skills, but being involved in that business, I need to start rolling up my sleeves and educate myself in computers. Uh, so that's how I started my career in IT uh, back then. And then during the financial uh, crisis back in Asia in 1997, of course, a lot of businesses uh, folded and affected. Uh, my, my backup plan was as I continued to hone my IT skills, um, I started preparing myself to moving here in the States. And back in 1997, I also started uh, venturing into more focus on cybersecurity. Uh, and that was fairly new, but I had this uh, anticipation and vision that this is going to be my passion in the future and my opportunity in the future, just in case I, I move to the States. Uh, so when I move uh, here in the States, uh, just right before Y2K, uh, definitely, you know, it became an opportunity for me. And I uh, started being involved in cybersecurity. I first uh, joined a very large uh, pharma, uh, not pharma, but it's a large uh, manufacturing, electronic manufacturing company, which is a spin-off of IBM. And I was also fortunate to be uh, mentored by one of the first CISO in the industry. Uh, so from there, I pretty much uh, had a lot of experience in the different areas of cybersecurity, which we all know it's very broad and had my first CISO role for a mortgage banking back in 2005. And then followed by, you know, being the CISO for a large pharmaceutical company then for nine years and followed by another CISO role for the largest US-based home healthcare provider. And then two years ago, I joined, uh, you know, this software technology uh, called HealthEdge. Sounds pretty good. Well, Jerry, even the idea of having a backup plan is, is actually good sort of CISO mentality, right? Because you can have these policies and procedures, but things may go wrong and you need to do something because not only do people want to know the root cause of the problem, but they want their system back up and working. And it sounds like uh, you, uh, you, were, you were in charge of that. So let's talk about HealthEdge a little bit. It sounds like clearly had good preparation for that. First of all, just give a little uh, orientation to what the company does. And then, you know, what are the sort of information security risks that Health Edge or other companies in that field are facing? Maybe how that is different or similar to what you've seen in, you know, other parts of the uh, industry, other industries that you've been involved in as a CISO. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so Health Edge is a software company, a healthcare software company that provides uh, integrated financial, administrative, uh, and clinical software platform products. Um, we actually have four uh, major product divisions where we used to have uh, four companies that is merging into one. So now we treat them as four product divisions and they are Health Edge, Rules Payer, uh, Guiding Care, Source, uh, and Wellframe. Our platform products uh, such as Payer, Care Manager, uh, Integration Kit, Connector, Account Management, and other related products and services serves the healthcare uh, verticals in the United States. Um, our corporate headquarters is in Burlington, Massachusetts, with four offices here in the U.S. and three development centers in India. Uh, our company goal and mission um, is not just to innovate, but to drive a digital transformation 
in the healthcare uh, industry through transaction automation um, and enablement of real-time business and clinical uh, engagement among healthcare payers in particular, uh, but also providers, members, and patients. Uh, now, from a, from a security uh, standpoint, um, not just us, but the entire industry alone. Um, ransomware and phishing attacks are still uh, the top threats and challenges the, that the industry is facing, uh, which includes miscellaneous errors by insider and, and of course, uh, web application attacks. Uh, I leverage a lot of research uh, material as well as uh, actual breach reports. So you can actually Google this or go directly to Health and Human uh, Health Services. Uh, they have, you know, uh, almost real-time reports of breaches within the healthcare industry. I also leverage uh, Poneman Institute uh, for a Privacy Breach Report, uh, and then from a security breach report standpoint, also the Verizon. So I believe, at least for the past at least eight or nine years, this has been a regular thing for me. I go and look at the current you know, uh, threat reports and breach reports, just to gauge where the industry is and what I need to prepare for from a threat trend uh, and risk standpoint. So that's very much at least from, from a healthcare perspective, because I've been in the healthcare industry for, you know, for the three companies I work for in the past 17 years. So imagine 17 years of my 25 years in cybersecurity spent in healthcare, and I'm one definitely of the original CISO in the healthcare yeah, space. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, on the ransomware, so you've been around for a while, as you, as you say, and uh, on the one hand, ransomware is terrible. On the other hand, some CISOs tell me that, you know, that, well, that's what it took to get the attention of the chief financial officer and chief executive officer. So all of a sudden it's expensive and, you know, and, and so on. And so, you, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, you, you mentioned ransomware and then Phishing, which is sort of a, a vector, not a problem in and of itself. It's maybe a, a, you know, a means to an end, including ransomware. Are there other sort of attacks? Like we hear about some of these like supply chain attacks. So HealthEdge itself is a significant size entity, but are there hackers that are trying, let's say, to use HealthEdge as a bridge to get in somewhere else, either a, even a larger entity or a government entity or, or somewhere else? And do you worry about other sorts of things like you know, corporate espionage or you know, other sorts of things I've seen even, I'm not sure if it's a case for Health Edge, but there's some hacking that's done to like deplete a competitor's uh, advertising budget, you know, with Google or something like that. What, you know, are the things that you see beyond ransomware and phishing? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. You know, uh, as part of my, uh, my management style, uh, I use data, you know, statistics and metrics uh, on a regular, at least on a monthly basis to go over the, the quality of technology, security technologies that we own. You know, so I can, you know, do a full value capture of all these uh, defensive mechanisms that we have. And as I saw, you know, in the past, at least two years at Health Edge, the amount of attacks that are coming outside, you know, web application attacks, because we do have external facing applications that serves, you know, the industry. Uh, so we monitor that real time. And the amount of attacks that are coming from interesting countries outside of U.S. is already a, a fact and a realization that, you know, some of the intelligence that we're getting from this particular country reported by the government, you need to watch out. It is actually showing uh, directly based on the attacks that we're, we're monitoring uh, as we block them, right? 
So it's already a validation of uh, we are being attacked, we are being, uh, you know, uh, tried to be uh, um, uh, compromised because we can be a supply chain uh, source of, of issue for the customers, you know, specifically in the payer space that we, we provide. So that's one piece. Now on the supply chain issue, I think it's, it's not just HealthEdge, but the other industry, uh, not healthcare alone, but others as well, where if we're using a specific software and it's vulnerable to you know, a specific uh, threat or attack, uh, then because we are a customer of that software, we need to start patching it, you know, start you know, applying the, the, uh, the controls to mitigate that risk. So this whole supply chain attack is definitely one of the top things that we try to monitor to ensure that we're not going to be a, you know, another channel uh, of, of attack for our customers. So we, yeah. You know, it's one thing when you consider a, a medium-sized business and, you know, there's a lot of competencies that, that you have and you're usually taking on, you know, other companies your size, some smaller, some a little bit bigger. What's different about cybersecurity is you know, it's not, it doesn't seem so reasonable for a company like Health Edge or any kind of medium sized company to like take on foreign governments. You know, it's not normally something that you're expected to do. And so it's a different type of a mentality and a different challenge. And I think if you combine that with the fact that a lot of times companies don't want to talk about what's happening, you know, you can see why they've sort of set themselves up for, for failure. And I think what you're speaking to partly is, you know, government reports, actually FBI getting involved in, in some of these situations. It's a new era and we need to think about things differently. And it sounds like you, you are. Yeah, and, and, and two things that I, I always uh, keep in mind and ensure when I join an organization. One is visibility. You know, I need to have full visibility of my environment so I know where the risks are. You know, at the end of the day, it's risk management, right? It's not just asking the CFO, you know, for, for money uh, or, or the CEO for, for support. But I really need to get visibility of my entire environment so I can identify the threats and the risk areas uh, so that I can champion and, and propose, you know, uh, the smart uh, proposals for programs to control, you know, these threats. Uh, that, that's primarily one of the, you know, the things that I do. And then second is, really going through um, our technology stack, all right? Uh, we CISOs and even CIOs are fun of, of uh, buying a lot of tools and technologies. And, and, yeah. and that's been uh, one of the things that I try to avoid. You know, uh, I do have a lot of tools, you know, uh, best of breed tools to, to protect my company, but I also ensure that we're also taking advantage of everything, all the features, capabilities, you know, avoid any shelfware, you know, uh, within the platforms that we own. So that that's uh, the second piece that uh, I always ensure when I join an organization. It's good. I mean, not to get too deep into the technical part of it, but if you think about all these sort of, you know, third party tools and things that get added on, it increases the complexity of your environment. And sometimes the, you know, the virus detection and protection is not that different from actually tools that hackers are using. And sometimes they can use those tools uh, as well. That's a story for another day. So let's talk a little bit about artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence is being used uh, in healthcare a lot. And um, what's the sort of headline from your standpoint on the implications of, let's say, generative AI in particular yeah. on cybersecurity in healthcare? Yeah, it, it's interesting because artificial intelligence and machine learning are not new, right? And have been used by many healthcare organizations for many years, including us for our predictive analytics and uh, 
to perform tasks by leveraging uh, big data. I actually use also artificial intelligence and, and machine learning for our security data lake. You know, we do have a lot of security technologies that already have the AI and ML capability today. But with the introduction of generative AI, uh, you know, more than a year ago, which is another type of AI and the large uh, language model, um, which is the learning algorithm, which is designed to perform digital assistant-like experience to users by generating, you know, content based on existing text, audios, or images. That is very enticing to users, you know, including us, because now, you know, this whole generative AI is, is giving me a, a better experience than the traditional AI and ML or machine learning that we used to have, right? Uh, most healthcare organizations now are using Gen AI for administrative and operational efficiency use cases, um, and few are starting to explore clinical applications, uh, which is also scary, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> you know, at the beginning of the year, we started blocking all generative AI related websites or applications within my organization. It grew from, you know, one, uh, 1,200 to today, 980,000 as of end of June. Uh, different types of plugins or applications, anything related to generative AI. And the reason we're blocking it is because we need to ensure that we're controlling it before we allow, right? Um, so AI, yes, it's being used by the healthcare organization. Gen AI it used to be a hype, but it's now real, right? And it is, I, I told our executive team, you know, it's, it's uh, a train that already left the, the train station. So we need to ensure that, you know, we catch up and, and we understand all the risk areas of it before we allow, you know, our users to, to use it. Um, Yes. Can can we talk? So okay, so that sounds good. And I think what happens with generative AI, it's moving fast enough. We may need to have a repeat of this conversation, and you know, in six months or so. I, I've seen it, you know, where people have have gotten in trouble. Um, I'm thinking one uh, one example where company didn't realize that its developers had put generative AI, you know, into the into mm -hmm. the code. And so while they're making assurances at the C level that something isn't happening, when you see the hallucinations coming on the other side, you say there's some Chat GPT in there somewhere. So and it's, I think, very interesting just the, you know, to have the policy that you're not going to have it internally. And then you actually have to have the enforcement mechanism because uh, a lot of people just sort of say, well, let me try that, you know, and see, uh, you know, and see where it and see where it goes. So I think that's, uh, that's a fascinating um, approach. I, I want to switch topics a little bit and talk about the role of the patient in cybersecurity. And I have a little bit of a different view uh, here on this one, but, you know, and I'll, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll lean into my bias a little bit. Like, is it reasonable for the patient to have put some responsibility on the patient for, for cybersecurity? I'll just tell you, I'll go ahead and tell you. So my thought is, you know, like I get on the plane as a passenger, okay? I'm going to put my seatbelt on and I'm not going to stand up and I'm not going to congregate around the lavatory. But it is not my job to make sure that like the plane is pressurized properly or that the avionics are, are, are working and that the sensors have been checked and, you know, if if I can, I had to order a beverage, it's not going to bring the plane down. You know what what is the role of the of the patient uh, here on cybersecurity? Why do we expect them to do something? Well, it, it really depends on who you're asking, which uh, vertical within healthcare you're talking about, right? So if I'm a patient of a provider, I expect that all the the medical technologies that are being attached or being used for my you know health 
uh, is secure enough, right? And all my privacy, you know, all the privacy controls are in place. So that's one area. Uh, but from a patient data standpoint, like a software company like ours, <clears throat> right? And, and even the payers, uh, I look at it no different from banking and finance where users and members like patients, right? They need to understand the threats on cybersecurity and privacy, right? On how you protect your credit card data, your financial information, it's the same thing, you know, when you're protecting your, you know, uh, your health information. Uh, so the user education and awareness is, is very important, um, you know, in, in every aspect, not just, you know, in our industry. Um, so yes, to answer your question, patients still have that responsibility. They cannot just assume that, you know, when they log in, you know, their, their data is protected. Yes, it will be protected, but are you logging in from a, an unsecured machine or unsecured, you know, iPhone or tablet or Android? Yeah. Right. So that is the expectation also that should be set from the patient. Okay. So it's fair as a fair point. So it's sort of like if we look in the physical world and I say, if I'm walking around on the streets, I shouldn't be waving my, you know, wad of cash around uh, either. And that's sometimes equivalent of what people are doing if they're just leaving themselves wide open, you know, on a machine that could be surveilled uh, easily. So I'll, I'll give you that one for the moment. So I want to ask a last question, which is just about uh, if you had any chance to read any good books lately, if there's anything that you might uh, recommend as a book, or conversely, if you want to recommend some book to avoid. Uh, yeah, to be, to be honest, I have not read a book for more than a year, or at, yeah. at least uh, this year. And the reason behind that is I blame generative AI. <laughs> yeah. I've been reading a lot of articles about it since the beginning of the year, you know, really to understand it because it's, it's fast evolving, you know, even faster how I saw cloud, big data evolve and even social media, you know, on the personal yeah. side. So I've been reading hundreds of articles, you know, since the beginning of the year, I average probably three articles a day or every yeah. night. But uh, last night, uh, my son actually posted something and recommended this book, which is Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. It's by Seth uh, Stephens, David Dowitz. Uh, okay. So I, I actually bought it. Uh, I ordered it last night, so I'm looking forward to reading that because, again, nice. it, it's related to you know, the, the, uh, this whole hype and now reality that I'm facing uh, on Gen AI. So I have a thought about the impact of generative AI on reading, which is that, you know, like if you look at what people write now these days, a lot of it is for SEO purposes and, you know, for specific things. But my thought is that if, if nobody's going to be writing anything themselves, why should anybody read anything? You know, so if I want to, if I want to read something, maybe I'm just going to have the AI write it for me specifically, and I'm not going to read anything. I don't expect you to agree with that one. And I don't know if it's actually true, but I think these are the nature of, you know, what's going to happen with AI beyond we can sort of be, if you have something that's having an exponential change, it's very hard to say like, what's, what's going to happen. And that sounds ridiculous now, and it probably is ridiculous, but those are the sort of things I think about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm preparing for what's next, you know, in the next yeah. uh, coming years, I, I always look at, you know, three or five years, you know, forward, what's going to be, uh, happening in the gen ai space uh so i've been talking and i've been you know very active in the healthcare industry community uh you know for especially on this topic since the beginning of the year 
what I actually see uh, for Gen AI, uh, it, the benefits outweigh the risk. You know? Yeah. But if this is done, you know, in a responsible way. So on, on artificial intelligence, of course, you know, uh, company, not just Gen AI, but also AI, uh, companies will need to build a responsible AI program. Um, Gen AI is not a technical decision, you know, but it's a risk decision. I've, yeah. I've been preaching that since day one, you know, in front of our leadership, you know, um, so proper governance must be built within an organization to ensure the allowance of, of Gen AI is fully vetted, both from a user productivity improvement as well as software product integrations standpoint. You know, that governance process at a minimum should include uh, evaluation and testing, a lot of evaluation and testing of input and output to ensure that the questions and answers are accurate, correct, non-biased, and safe. You know? And then second, when selecting a Gen AI technology, you know, this whole vendor diligence audit and Gen AI architecture review must really take place. You know? No different from when we're buying a new software, Gen AI yeah. is the same. Right? And then the third, uh, decisions on use cases uh, should be based on, you know, quote me on this, risk first, financial second, technical the third. You know, risk must not be an afterthought, which security, yeah. as you know, right? That's how it evolved in, in, on the internet. Security was an afterthought. But on, yeah. on Gen AI, again, risk, financial, and technical. That should be the, ba the basis of your decision. Great. Yeah. Spoken, spoken like a true CISO, and I appreciate <laughs> that. So Jerry Santo Tomas, Chief Information Security Officer at HealthEdge, I want to say thank you very much for not just putting up with me, but for sharing your insight and wisdom on the Health Biz Podcast today. Yeah, thank you, David, for having me. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, President of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.